What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host, Ken Milam and John Swan, as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. This episode is brought to you by a landlocked naval officer who needed a new hobby outside of drinking snobby IPAs. Thank you, Mark. Good morning, Mr. Ken. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing wonderful. Except it's too damn hot. The bees don't even like it this hot. That is true. The bees are are a little cranky and cantankerous right now because of the heat, the summer dearth, especially for us here in Central Texas. We have a really hard dearth. They are not having it, and going out and checking your bees right now is not the fun and enjoying experience that you may have had earlier this year. No, and with as many swarms as we we got over the over the year, they are testy. Now we got one bunch of the swarm that they just as nice as they can be, uh, but most of them are just testy as hell. <laughs> Can't blame them, especially uh, if it's a late year swarm. They, you know, they're not necessarily worth as much and they showed up and they just had what resources they brought with them and there's nothing else out there to supplement them. And so they're probably a little irritated with the decision that they made after the fact in retrospect. (laughs) I'm glad you said that because, you know, last uh, week I think I was talking about how much uh, the bees are eating the ultra bee, the 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 pollen, pollen substitute. substitute. Yeah, and the reason I wanted to tell everybody is I didn't even think about it. I went and checked my apiary uh, where I over out at Mike's where I have all the bees. They're not they're hitting it there, but they're not just hammering it like they are there at the house. And then I got to thinking. Oh, yeah, they're at the house. That's all the swarms. We've got eight swarms there in, in you know, uh, hives. So they have nothing. And, I mean, you talk about busy. They are packing some pollen. Let me tell you, the other day we opened up the boxes, and one of the swarms, it was an eight-frame eight box, had five, five frames full of pollen. I'm sitting there. I don't think I'm going to put any more pollen out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, what else is the potential contributing factor between the hives over by your house and the hives out there on the land by Mike's? There's one other key difference. Mike's, you know, we got those kind of in that brush and they don't get a lot of wind and they get hot over there. Also, I have that, uh, I was just open feeding the ones there at the house, just set them out there on on a big spool we have. I just put a, uh, poured the pollen out there, but all of those bees are swarms that they didn't have anything because they were swarms from earlier this spring to we had one come in last week, in fact. True. Um, but what about colony size and colony strength, though? Uh, the packages are getting small. Uh, they just never took off. Some of the pack- Some of the bees are, I don't know. I just don't understand over there. I think I'm going to probably pull my hives from over there this fall and find some new places to put them. But uh, other than that, it's, 
it's dry over there. They don't have nothing to eat over there. And around the house, we have a few flowers. We have the lake. And, well, they have lake over there, but they ain't got no flowers. Yeah. Well, the the one thing that is crucial when it comes to bees and foraging is the fact that they have to have a sufficient number of bees to take care of everything inside the colony and then the excess bees are the ones that go out and forage. So if you've got a colony that's really small, it's going to be harder for that colony to go through and really pull in the resources that it needs to be able to help the colony grow and get bigger. It's going to be a, a very much an uphill battle and uphill climb there. And so I think with the ones over at Mike's all being smaller, um, kind of dwindling in size and having a struggle this year, that you're going to see less foragers out there on the pollen feeders because there's less bees overall. And then, like you said, the the ones over by your house, that's kind of the flip-flop. They're a fresh swarm. They came in with a lot of bees, and they didn't have any other resources, so they have to be out there and have to be going. <laughs> There's your turkey gobble. <laughs> you got a turkey gobble in there. I had my, uh, my bulldog decided it was going to throw a fit just a little bit ago. So, yeah, so apparently that's going to be a new thing here recently. He's a, he's a mouthy one. So let's uh, let's go over here real quick and let's give a shout out to our newest patrons. And uh, these are people that have signed up here in the last week or so on Patreon. And we want to give them our sincerest gratitude. So thank you very much to James P., Casey S., Kayla, OCD, <laughs> mainly because Kayla has multiple names, um, not because she's actually OCD, and then Francie W., and Clint L., thank you all so very much for joining us on Patreon and helping support the show. We greatly appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir, today, we do. Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So today we are going to go through and we are going to do another listener question episode. This is the episode that was technically supposed to come out last week, but we kind of delayed it. So we'll go through and we will tackle it today. And... Shuffle some things around here real quick. There'll probably be some paper moving noises. All right. So our first listener question, are you ready for these? You ready to to give out all the advice and info you can? Of course I am. (laughs) Just making sure you're ready for the questions and not ready for a nap. I'm listening to you, (laughs) and I've been sitting here texting, and I'm, I'm sitting here doing six different things at one time. Six things at one time. Uh-huh. Boy, the quality of these responses are going to be epic. <laughs> Never know. Okay. <clears throat> First question comes from Roger T., and his subject is Nectar Bound and Looking to Swarm. He says, hey, guys, sorry to bug you again, but I wanted to get your advice on a situation that I've been having with my two colonies. Both are in Langstroth hives and were started this spring. One was from a swarm and the other was from a split. Things were coming along very nicely in the last few weeks and they were building out a medium box of frames and filling them with nectar each week. Two weeks ago, I did my first honey harvest of the two boxes of capped honey from from the swarm hive and I gave both hives another box of new frames. Last week, I inspected the hives and saw that the big colony had drawn out about 80% of the new box, so I went ahead and added on yet another box of the extracted frames to the very top so that they could continue to fill them out. 
but the smaller hive had only built out three frames in the box that I had left them. Everything else looked good, and I figured that the flow... Oh, I jumped a line. And I figured the flow was slowing down. Yesterday, I opened the hives and saw that both had almost completely filled the brood boxes with open nectar, even though they still had frames with foundation above, and that the smaller hive had made three queen cups, one of which had a larva and royal jelly, exclamation point. Here's what I did. Please let me know if it was the correct thing to do and if I need to do anything else. The large hive had another two boxes of capped honey already. So I extracted both of those along with a frame of capped honey from the brood box of the small hive. Then I went through and found my queens in both hives, removed the swarm cells after verifying the queens were there, and put the extracted frame in the middle of the brood box of the small hive and then added a newly extracted super right above each brood box. I'm using queen excluders, so my thinking was that the bees could move the nectar from the brood box into the empty comb directly above, giving the queen some space, and the empty frame of chrome and the empty frame of comb in the brood box of the little hive will also give the queen somewhere to lay immediately and hopefully stop the swarm urge. Did I do the right thing? Why did they stop building comb if they're still bringing in so much nectar? The goldenrod is just starting to bloom here, so we're starting our fall flow and we've had almost no dearth this summer, which was kind of weird. Anyways, love to hear your thoughts. Roger. Roger, Roger. Okay. You want me to start or you want me to use? And you can tell me I'm wrong or what? Oh, sure. That sounds like a great plan. <laughs> oh, then what I'm going to say, yes, he did pretty much right about by finding the queen, make sure there's queens in there, pulling the queen cups out, pulling those out. Uh, now, on why would you pull honey out of the brood box? Well, because he wanted to put comb back in there, uh, like we did the couple of tin frames that we had. We had to pull those. They were honey bound. We pulled combs out of the, put, took the honey out, put two empty combs back in on each box, and they blew up. They didn't have many bees. But, and he put an empty frame above that. He needs to be putting an empty frame above the brood box to let them fill that up. Then if he wants to use a queen excluder on top of that, he needs to go with a queen excluder on top of that. So And then let the bees go on up from there to fill the frames above the brood box and the medium. Sounds like, is he in Texas? I'm not sure where he's at. Oh, yes, I am. Yes, I am. He is nowhere near Texas. He's in Ontario. <laughs> Ontario, Canada. Oh, heck, I don't know. I don't know how their their flow up there because I'd be scared to death to be working out of the brood box getting honey out of there because that's... And then he's got... I don't know. I need to shut up and let you talk about this one. <laughs> okay, so the number one thing is, you know, he did make a comment that it was weird that they did not have any type of dearth up there. Well, to my knowledge, um, a lot of the northern states and the Canadian provinces don't really have a dearth. Their their spring flow, quote unquote, doesn't really happen until like the middle of summer. 
and their flow is hard and heavy and fast, and it transitions spring, summer, fall, kind of all in one swath. And then winter comes, and the the winter is the predominant season for them up there. So the bees really don't necessarily slow down. But one thing that does change is the cycle, the cycles of nature and the sun and the cycle of the ebb and flow of the bee colony itself. So what more than likely occurred is, yes, there's still a ton of nectar out there and a ton coming in. However, at some point, your colony has to make a decision on do we continue expending the huge resource drain to, to convert the nectar and honey into wax or do we stop and just start storing? And usually about halfway through the year, whenever you hit kind of that summer equinox, that decision is usually made somewhere around that vicinity or a little bit after by the bee colonies. And this is because they can sense the sun is now getting lower in the sky earlier each day and things are starting to shift and they may be very subtle things that we don't notice for a couple of months, but the bees know that it's coming. They know that the days are getting shorter, which means winter is coming and we cannot continue expending all these resources to create wax. We have to save those resources as food stores to last through the winter. So when they went through and they stopped drawing out the wax, they still bring in all the nectar and they pack it in wherever they can. Now, you did have a great explanation on the queen excluder, too, because, and I don't know the exact setup, but from what he said, let's theorize if it is one deep box and then a queen excluder and then all the other boxes, Mm -mm. the bees don't necessarily like traveling through the queen excluder. And if they're coming in and the main entrance down on the bottom and it's still a heavy flow, they're going to want to unload their nectar as quick as possible to the closest nurse bee and then get back out. Well, that nurse bee needs to unload that nectar as quick as possible into a cell so that it can go and get the next incoming forager. If they're doing all that right there in the brood box, that's where all the nectar is going to go is into the brood box and that will backfill that space. So by taking the queen excluder off, it makes it easier for them to travel up and go through and start putting some of that nectar a little bit higher. The other thing is if you have a top entrance, They can utilize that top entrance to return to offload that nectar up into the honey supers, and then it gets deposited there instead of down into the brood box. Going through and finding the queens and doing, you know, making sure that you have them before you make any actions towards any potential queen cups or queen cells Mm -hmm. is extremely important. And Roger, you did an amazing job with that. That was great. You found both your queens before you destroyed any cells, so that's good. Um, The other side of it is... Yes, by pulling frames out, you did exactly what Ken and I did, and that's what you mentioned, Ken, when we had the the honey-bound hives, we took out several frames of honey and replaced them with empty drawn comb, and the whole key with that is the drawn comb. We put that drawn comb inside there, the bees can immediately utilize it, the queen can immediately utilize it to start laying more eggs, and that will kind of help curb that swarm urge because now they have more room and they have more space. So that's the whole point of extracting from the colony, from the brood boxes themselves, is just to get some of that nectar out of the way so that they can turn around and continue filling with hopefully brood and not hopefully nectar. So all in all, you did a great job. It sounds wonderful. Um, This email was actually a few weeks ago because we've been kind of stockpiling them for the episode. So I had already responded to Roger via email. And uh, hopefully now things are, now that we're towards the end of August, coming into September, actually, this episode will come out at the beginning of September. Um, Hopefully everything is going really well with the rest of the colonies there. Now up there. Good job, Ken. You did great. 
Well, thank you. Up there, they need to be running two deeps, don't they? Well, so technically, that was always my assumption, is that they needed two deeps. Um, but in reality, they can still kind of do whatever they want to do. When I was up in Saskatchewan, they ran a deep and a medium is how they overwintered the colonies. And it just dumbfounded me because I was like, shouldn't shouldn't you need at least two deeps? At, at the very least, if not two deeps and a medium, <laughs> you know? Um, but the areas and everything can kind of change and they insulate their hives and they make sure that they're strong and healthy and they got plenty of food. So, yeah. So it, it definitely can change based on the region, based on the type of bees, um, kind of how the flow works, all that kind of stuff. So, all right. Our next question comes from Luis J. And we have, hi, John. You answered a few of my questions a few weeks ago about our crazy queen tower. Now, just to go back and give everybody, because I don't know that this necessarily got mentioned on the air, um, but Luis is doing a double queen system, meaning they've got a brood box on the bottom with a queen excluder above it. The queen is in that box doing her thing. Then they've got several supers, then another queen excluder, and then another brood box at the top with a separate queen in that one. And the point of a double queen system or a queen tower like that is so that you can maximize honey production because you're sharing the forager force between two colonies so that you can have a huge forager force to go out and bring in as much nectar as possible. And they store that between the two colonies. And then you can go through and do your honey harvest. So they're going to draw out a ton of wax. They're going to, you know, fill it and cap it. And it's going to go very, very quickly. So this is the setup that she has. So she says, all was well and everything was going great until today when I noticed that the upper hive seems to have gone queenless. There's some capped brood, but no eggs or larvae. Queen cups are present, but they are empty. The bottom hive is thriving and we even spotted the queen down there today. So my questions are, is the queen in the upper hive likely gone? I believe that I heard you say something about in the fall, they can stop laying for a while. I don't think that this is the case because the lower hive is doing great and still has eggs and larvae. Is it too late for the hive to raise a new queen? We called our local supplier, but they don't have any queens right away. Lastly, there's a ton of pollen in the frames. I've heard you talk about things being honey bound, but is it possible to be pollen bound? Thank you so much, Luis. Because I got bees that are pollen bound, bound right now. They don't have room to put eggs. Yeah, they can be pollen bound too. Absolutely. That is correct. Anything that occupies a cell space that is not brood counts as something that can bind the bees into a specific area or reduce their amount of space. So if it's nectar and then capped honey, yes, they will open it. And sometimes if it's open liquid, they will move it, but not as often as you might think. But if it is pollen and it gets converted into bee bread, the only time that gets moved is if they go through and eat it. That's all. If they don't go through and eat it, then it's not going away and it's just going to be there. So like you were talking about, you had some of the swarm hives that had four or five frames of solid pollen in them from you feeding the pollen. Mm -hmm. That can very well become a pollen bound situation. So yes, they can definitely do that. And yes, Luis, the bees will stop laying if you're in a dearth. If there's no food coming in and it's super hot, 
they will cut back on the laying and some colonies and some lines will actually stop entirely, which is a good thing because it creates a brood break in the system. Now, if that happens in a normal colony and you don't see any signs of laying worker, you don't see any signs of emergency queen cells, nothing like that, the queen could very well still be in there and be hiding. And she's just not making herself known. And she's also not in the middle of the frames because there's no point. There's nothing to do at the moment. So she could be off on the sidewall, the inner cover, like there's no telling where she could be at. Now, with it being a double queen system, though, if something occurred to the top queen, be it she left and they swarmed or absconded and you just missed it, or she died for some reason, the queen in the lower box and the pheromones from that queen could still travel up to the top box and inhibit them from taking any action against that. Because since how you've got a two-queen colony system and the foragers are sharing the space between everything, there's no void of like empty boxes or empty comb. It's all drawn out. They're going up and down that entire tower and they're intermingling and mixing, which means they're sharing all the pheromones, all the scent from both queens. The top box could have decided, hey, we, we've reached our peak. We've gotten plenty of bees. We've gotten plenty of nectar, plenty of food. Let's go ahead and swarm. And so they could take that queen and leave, but not ever actually try to create a new queen because they've got one down in the bottom. Same thing can occur if the queen gets sick and dies. They may not ever try to make a new queen because the queen in the bottom's pheromones are being distributed all the way up to the top box. So it can go either way. Now, just as a converse kind of flip-flop of this, if you had a brood box on the bottom and a queen excluder, a box of comb, and then a medium a box or two of nothing, just empty, undrawn foundation, then a box of comb and then another brood box, that empty, undrawn foundation in the center does create a void and the bees are less likely to travel across that because once they reach it, there's nothing there. So your top box won't necessarily go all the way down and the bottom box won't go all the way up. That can trigger the response to raise a new queen if something happens because they're disconnected and they're not associating themselves with each other. So therefore, they could potentially raise a new queen in that situation, but not if it's all solid comb because then they will transverse that comb. So uh, let's make sure we got all the questions here. Is it too late for them to raise a new queen? Not necessarily. Um, they could potentially do it, but we have talked about in some of the most recent episodes about the perils of a colony trying to raise a queen during the peak of summer. That's when there's the most predators out there trying to gobble her up. She's not as aerodynamic. She's not as fast. And she becomes an easy target. So that can be tricky. They may raise one successfully, but she may leave to go on her mating flight and never come home. If she does make it home... There may not have been a lot of drones out at the time because of the heat and everything else. So they may not come back and, you know, be fully mated like they should either. So there's lots of little things that can go into play on that type of situation. So any comments from the there you go. So so what she if if she needs to go through that top box again or top high colony, look for a queen. And then if she does not find a queen. Would it be wise to pull the queen excluder out and let let the queen from down below go all the way to the top? If they think that she, the queen below is the queen because her pheromones are going up, would that be something that would keep them from having to worry about getting a queen 
this late or would they rather do a pull a a frame of eggs and brood or eggs and larvae out put it in the top let them raise a queen or would they raise a queen because they're getting the pheromones from the queen at down below uh, I don't think that they would raise a queen because of the pheromone situation. I think if they were going to, they would have already done so. But um, one of the things about a two-queen system is it's typically just for the nectar flow. Uh, most people don't leave them that way indefinitely. They only use them during the nectar flow to maximize the production. Okay. So at the end of the flow, you either divide those colonies back into two separate colonies or you combine it into one colony by removing whichever queen you feel like underperformed for the year. So that would be kind of the main main scenario with that. So it's not an, a, a loss. The whole point of the experiment has really ran its course at this point. So it's not a loss to do so. They were going to try to hang on through the fall flow to see if they could get like a bountiful fall harvest as well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, ultimately, if it comes down to it, they could still go through and combine them. Um, now, if they separated the colonies off and gave them a frame of eggs and larvae like you were mentioning, then yes, that separate colony would go ahead and try to raise a queen. So they could do it that way as well. But it kind of depends on the size and strength of the overall tower system and you know if it's really merited to be two colonies at this point or if it should just be condensed into one because one big, strong, healthy colony is going to always outperform and always is your best bet going through the winter to survive. So you know, not necessarily any point in dividing it if it's going to weaken both halves to the point that there could be issues. No, she needs to look and see if, if the queen's gone. She just needs to let the two run together and be one big, huge hive. They can keep warm better and they can keep everything ready, going a lot easier. Yeah, just reduce the boxes down to the appropriate amount of bee space and comb and food for wintertime and then you're good to go. Yep. So our next question comes from Southeast Texas, and this is from Jamie and Shannon, and they say, Hi, Ken, John, and the gang. It is the dynamic duo from Southeast Texas. We have a few questions. Number one, we have a hive that has a second super with seven of the ten frames half drawn out and containing approximately equal amounts of open nectar and capped honey. The other three frames in the box are not drawn out at all. The first super was full the last time that we checked, and we are planning on leaving it there for the ladies. So, should we just take the second super off and for the winter and freeze it, or should we leave it on for the fall flow? We do get goldenrod in October, but we're not sure if we need this box to fill or if the bees would just happily fill the empty available cells in the first super and the brood box. So, if we stop at the first question and we go through and look at that, what do you think? I would say leave it alone and let just let them I just got to think would you flip it would you take the medium put it on the bottom let them come go through no because they don't want to go over food to get up to the brood box you know just keep it on the bottom keep them medium because that's their food store anyway let them finish filling up the brood box this fall and should be good yeah so yeah basically in that scenario i would leave it for now there's no harm like you could go ahead and you could pull it and extract it you could pull it and freeze it in case you needed emergency food stores um 
or you could leave it there. There is really in this specific situation, there's no harm either direction that you go because you already have your brood box and you have a super full of capped food for the bees. So they're already set for winter. Mm-hmm. Everything above that is above and beyond. So if you want to leave it on there and let them do the fall flow and finish filling up all the available frames and capping that and then going down and filling up all the available comb in the other boxes and capping that, then at the end of the fall flow, you can still pull that top box, freeze it and save it for them or extract it for yourself. And you're completely fine on that. Um, there is no harm. The only thing is that when winter does come, especially for Southeast Texas, get rid of one of those two supers so that you just have your deep and your super and that's it. You don't necessarily need three. They're they're never going to go through that much food in the wintertime. So the second question, Jamie says, we have two hives that are jam-packed. Both have one super on, which we are going to leave for them. We're concerned that they may still swarm, but they haven't so far and we haven't seen any queen cells, just queen cups. Shannon thinks that we should add supers, but I say no. What do you say? We really don't want to wait to split, or sorry, we really don't want to split or to add to the apiary at this point. I believe there'll be some die-offs and the population will reduce down before winter. Thanks for your feedback, Jamie and Shannon. I'm leaving that open for your comment. I'm I'm sitting here thinking... I want to know how far southeast they are. Are they in the Golden Triangle? And if they are, they just got through with a hurricane. So we don't know what they got now. That's true. I mean, we would hope that they, if they were in the area where the hurricane went through, um, hopefully everybody is safe and they're they're okay. And hopefully they strapped their hives down to try to keep them at least in one piece. If not, you know, they could still potentially blow over, but they'd still be in one piece. So that would be definitely for everybody out there. If you are involved in, uh, if you not, if you are, if you were involved in any of the areas where the hurricane came through, then we hope that everybody is doing well, and uh, hopefully you and your bees and your family and and everything made it through of that okay, because that is a tragic ordeal for sure. Um, so in in her case, they basically. It is kind of the, the again. It kind of goes back to the ebb and flow of the season. So Southeast Texas is going to have a much warmer, milder winter than even we do here in Central Texas. Mm -hmm. And for them, they're still not going to need as much food. So if you've already got them set up that way and they're already packed full, they've got one super on there that you're going to leave for them, they're probably not going to swarm, probably. Now, anything is possible because bees are bees and bees will do what bees want to do whenever they want to do it. But there is usually some sort of pattern and ebb and flow to the season. So my guess is leaving them there is going to be perfectly fine. Yes, there will be die-offs and they will shrink down in size because some of that older older forager force is going to be going away. And here in September and October, they're going to be replaced with the fat winter bees that the queen's going to start rearing right about now. So the colonies will shrink down, but still having a huge amount of bees that can cluster up and make sure that everybody stays warm and healthy is a better, stronger colony going into the winter anyway. So just continue going through and monitoring and checking them. And more than likely, they're going to be perfectly fine. You should not have to worry about them swarming um, unless they're crazy bees that live out at Kins and then they swarm, you know, all the time in October and the first part of September. <laughs> we got a swarm. It wasn't last week. His first this week, Max got a swarm. Yeah. Yeah, he, he posted the picture of them. Uh, they swarmed, went into one of his swarm traps, strapped up to the top of something, 
then decided they didn't like it, came back out and balled up on the bottom. Yeah, and he went, he caught them then. He caught them when they was balled up, and he put them in a tin frame yeah, with a queen excluder. So our next set of questions comes from good old Rachel down under in the land of Oz. She says, uh, let's see, I'm going to skip over some of this. Okay. Say it in an Aussie uh, accent. Yeah, I can't do that. (laughs) I can only do that if it's like impromptu and it just happens. If you put me on the spot, it's immediate performance anxiety. (laughs) Um, Okay. He's reading right now. All right. Yeah, I was was trying to decide where to start this at. Um, Because she's referencing something that was on a Patreon bonus episode. Mm -hmm. And I I wasn't going to quite go into all of that. So... Rachel says, uh, this is basically starting off talking about how she had a nuke Mm -hmm. that started off in autumn, so it was very late for them, and she really didn't get to feed them and get them to build out as much comb as she wanted to. But over winter, she was going through and she was still filling them up and, and feeding them and everything else, so they went from four frames to a little bit over eight frames. And the outside frames really were only half done on the autumn flow before it got too cold for the flow to stop and them finishing drawing out that box. So they were going to overwinter basically in just that one single box. They didn't have any additional supers or anything else. And she says, because it rarely gets sub-zero, which for them is zero degrees Celsius or 32 degrees Fahrenheit here, and often into the mid-teens which for them is 15 degrees Celsius or 60 degrees Fahrenheit here, that's kind of their their winter temperature range. It very rarely gets too, too low, um, and it's usually above the temperature where the bees can still fly because anything between 50 and 60, they'll do very short little flights just to relieve themselves. And then over 60, they'll actively go out and still forage. So she says, since how the temperatures are warmer, um, I could have the odd kin, quote-unquote, look in through the top of the box and peeking through where we were feeding to see how the bees were doing. Mm -hmm. So the questions that bounce around in my head along this topic are basically like in Canada, where it can get to minus 40 degrees Celsius, um, her conversions don't go that low because her brain freezes in sub-zero temperatures. (laughs) So she can't give the Fahrenheit conversion of that. Um, Since it gets so cold up there, Their bees are basically just hunkered down for months on end, doing nothing but shivering to keep warm and eating enough to continue being able to generate that heat. Whereas in Austin and over here in Perth, our bees go looking for forage all winter long. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that they're actually finding anything, but they are out there flying and flying uses up energy. So I presume that ours could actually starve in the middle of a milder climate if it is too wet or there's nothing around for them to collect. Would that be correct? This is a local club comment where they were talking about the fact that bees in the city have plenty of gardens and can still find stuff even in the depths of winter, and they don't necessarily need fed over winter. But in the hills, um, like where she's at, There is far less forage, so you may need to feed. She fed hers, as suggested, and gave them another box of foundation with a liquid feeder on top because now their average temperatures are above that 60-degree Fahrenheit or the 15-degree Celsius mark, so they can start liquid feeding again because as we're transitioning into fall, they're transitioning into what, Ken? Spring. 
the answer would be spring. That's what I said. I said spring. <laughs> I didn't hear you say anything okay. at all. I said spring. Um, okay. So, yes, Rachel, basically you are correct. The bees in the warmer, more mild climates where there may not be a lot of things out there for them, they are still flying and they are still active. And the very first time I got my colony... I followed along with everybody else and I I set them up and I fed them and I had them set for winter and I thought everything was great. And then we had an extremely mild winter and every single day the bees were constantly active and going and going and foraging. And I was terrified that due to all the expenditures of energy of them flying, they were going to eat themselves out of house and home. Now, what I didn't know is that there were some very obscure things out there that do still produce nectar. There's stuff around here that produces pollen dang near year-round. But there are other plants that will produce nectar at odd times of the year. One of those is mistletoe. And the mistletoe up in the trees blooms in January. And if the weather is correct and it's not too cold or raining, it is a bountiful nectar crop. And bees in some of those milder climates where there happens to be mistletoe can take that and really help bolster themselves up. So it kind of balances itself out, but it comes back to always going through and watching. And if your colony is suddenly burning through resources very quickly, then yes, definitely supplementally feeding is a good way to mitigate that. But if they're active, but you're looking in there and they're not really burning through their food stores, then they're doing what they need to do. And there's not really any need for concern or alarm because again, they may be active, but they're not burning through those stores, so everything is good on that. And if they are burning through their stores and you don't want to have to let them dry out the water, you can put a fondant in there. Yeah, and I think she did some solid feeding Okay. Um, from the sounds of the last part of the email there. I think she did some solid feeding as well. So, you know, yeah, whenever it gets too cold, when it's below 60 degrees Fahrenheit or 15 degrees Celsius— when your average temperatures reach that point and or lower, you stop liquid feeding mm -hmm. because it's going to add extra condensation and moisture to the colony. It is super hard for the bees, even at a two to one or three to one solution to dehydrate the rest of that water out of there. Um, it's just not ideal for them. So you switch over to a solid sugar feed, be it a fondant or a sugar brick or sugar camp and let them go through and do those. And then whenever the temperatures reach that 60 or higher and you start transitioning back into the warmer months, then you can switch back over to a liquid. So our next question comes from Jaden. And Jaden says, Hello, John and Ken. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and another one from Canada. I've been wondering about having artificial lights on near a hive in my backyard and how and if this may affect the operations of the colony. At night, I can see bees flying around the light, and I can't help but think what it might do to them. Thanks a lot, Jaden. Have you ever experienced that, having bees flying around a light after dark? No, that's moths. Well, okay, so that's a great analogy. Moth to a flame, the moth flies to the light, mm -hmm. and it just stays there all night long, fluttering around it, and it, it just can't function otherwise. Mm -hmm. So the bees are exactly the same way. But instead of being a nighttime creature, they're a daytime creature and they are drawn to the light. So that's why inside their cavity, anything that opens up and a beam of light shines in there, they're immediately going to rush towards it because the light doesn't belong inside their cavity. It's supposed to be dark and it's going to draw all their attention. But when we look at the bee's anatomy, 
they have their two primary eyes and those eyes are faceted. So they've got, you know, like the surface of a diamond that's been cut. They've got all these little facets in there that allow them to see different angles and it allows them to see even better the faster they move. So it really comes into play for them when it comes to flying so they can see where they're going. But they have three separate oculi, three separate little eyes on the top of their head that are primarily photoreceptors just to detect light and dark. And that's what they use to pinpoint the precision location of the sun in the sky, be it cloudy or not. That's what they use for that. Now at nighttime, the bees are supposed to be in the dark and they're happy with that. But then when there is a bright intrusion of light, it can catch their attention. Usually the bees that are affected are the ones that are the foragers that are coming back late. The sun is already set. It's dusk. There's just barely enough light to see and they're almost making their way home. And then your yard light comes on and suddenly there's something extremely bright that detracts them, distracts them from what they were doing and pulls them off course. And they helplessly fly straight towards that light because they're not used to being seeing such a bright source of light on the ground. It's supposed to be the sun way up in the sky that they can never reach. So that light detours what they were doing. They end up coming over, they go to the light, and they will literally fly around that light until one of two things happens. They either get tired and hopefully stop and hunker up somewhere near the light, or they fly to the point of exhaustion and death. Now, if you have lights closer to your colony, it's not going to affect everybody inside the colony, but any of the guard bees that are out front or any bees that may have been bearding can be affected by it, and it can actually pull them over to the light, and then the same sort of scenario can come up. Now, if they are smart and they do stop in time and they hunker down, usually they can make it until the sun comes up and that light goes off, and then they'll go back to their colony. But if they don't, if it's so bright and they're so overwhelmed and they constantly fly, they will burn up all their resources internally and they can literally exhaust themselves to the point of death. So it can be a problem. And if you can relocate any lights like that or make sure they don't come on until well after dark so that you don't catch any of those foragers coming back, that's probably the best scenario. You hanging in there, Ken? We got yeah, two more. I said don't go into the light. I was whispering it. Don't go into the uh -huh. light. <laughs> You're having these conversations in your head. <laughs> Don't go into the light. Don't. Okay. Our next question okay. comes from James. And James says, hi, guys. Uh, apparently, James goes by Jimmy. So, hi, guys. This is Jimmy P. with a cold water bee, bee wranglers up in northwestern Mississippi. Just Western wondering. Mississippi? I say what? No, Northwestern Mississippi. Uh, yeah, Northwest Mississippi. There you go. Is that your Mississippi accent? That's a Mississippi accent. Sounds good to me. Okay. I don't know. Probably a Texas Mississippi I was, accent. I'm just going to let you go with it. Okay. So, mm -hmm. Jimmy with the cold water bee wranglers out of Northwest Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Just wondering if you guys have the red staghorn, better known as red sumac, or the lemonade tree. I noticed that my girls were bringing in a lot of red pollen on their legs and discovered that they were getting it from the red berries and blooms on the tree and was wondering if you guys have ever experienced this in your area. Thanks. So. We have a shumac. I went in and. Wait. Say, say what? We have a shumac here, but that's that flowers in the spring. Well, actually, so I, I went and did a little bit of research on this. There are multiple 
varieties of sumac, including poison sumac. Um, but there's lots of sumac out there that is not poisonous. So for them, the red sumac, which is technically the staghorn sumac and commonly called the lemonade tree, that it's more northeast than anywhere. That's its like predominant main region or its local native habitat. Um, but people can import it and it can grow in other regions. And so there in northwestern Mississippi, apparently, you know, they do have some and it does grow. For us down here in central Texas, we don't have that specific type of sumac, again, unless somebody imported it as a, an, what do I want to say, as a... Flower and plant. Yeah, um, exotic species that they brought into the area. But what we do have is one of them called the prairie flame leaf sumac, which does turn red, much like the staghorn does. And it is also, it's kind of a fall blooming type plant. We also have a lighter colored one called the winged sumac, which is an off-white yellowish colored flower. And that one is just finishing its bloom cycle. So it blooms in the peak of the heat of the summer and... We would go buy it when we walk. There's one of them down here in the neighborhood park. When we would walk in the evenings, there's not a single insect on that tree. But if you go for that same walk at anywhere between 7 a.m. and 9 a.m. in the morning, the entire tree is alive, and there's just thousands upon thousands of humming uh, hummingbirds, of honeybees, all over this tree going from flower to flower to flower. And the whole tree is basically a giant flower at that point. But then once 9 a.m. passes and the heat starts to pick up, they all disappear. The plant stops producing the nectar and the bees go away. And then the next day it repeats that cycle. So for the, the winged leaf sumac, it is actually an early morning nectar producer and the bees can take advantage of that before the heat of the day gets really, really too hot out there. No comments? Oh, I'm swallowing my hot coffee, my cold coffee. Yeah, I was going to say it ain't hot no more at this point. No, it's cold now. Um, no comment. Okay. Our last question comes again from Rachel Down Under, and Rachel says this one is a last-minute question. Um, you and others have mentioned often transferring a frame of brood and or eggs from one hive to another for various reasons, <laughs> but what if your hives are not near each other? How would you keep them warm? How critical is the temperature control, and how long can you keep them warm? I think someone somewhere mentioned leaving the nurse bees on it and putting it into a nuke box to transfer it, but does it need to be over a certain ambient air temperature? Cheers, and have a great weekend. Kia ora, Rachel. So, Rachel, um, you're in Australia. You're not supposed to be using kia ora. Um, that is a New Zealand thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. So... All right, so yes, that is actually, that's a great point. We do talk about it all the time. We have not necessarily ever pinpointed some of the specifics of this, and you do need to keep it warm. So the brood, there is a little bit of a difference. If it is open brood, it is more susceptible. If it is eggs, it is extremely susceptible. And then if it is capped brood, it is a little bit more insulated, but you do want to keep it in a very warm atmosphere, but it needs to be a warm, moist atmosphere because if it's a hot dry atmosphere the eggs will actually dry out and desiccate and it will kill them you can also dry out the exposed larva if it's too dry 
So the brood nest is always in that mid 90 degree range of temperature. So if you're gonna do this transporting frames back and forth and it's hot outside, what I usually do is put it in the truck without the air conditioner on and I might roll down, like crack my front windows but leave the back ones closed and I have it in the cab with me. You can shake off the frames, put them in there and if you've got like a 15, 20 minute drive to get to your hives, in that time period, the majority of them should be good and it's not gonna be overly detrimental to the, the frames that you've taken. Now, on the flip side of that, if it is colder, you might wanna warm it up and or make sure that it has the nurse bees with it as well. Now, you do wanna make sure that it is nurse bees because they're gonna be more accepting of the other queen wherever you put them. Um, but if you go through and you kind of interdisperse them where you do a frame of the new and then a frame of the original and then the other frame of the new and kind of have them in between original frames from the other colony, you should be good with acceptance and stuff on that too. But yes, temperature does play a big part in that. That's one of the reasons why you don't open up the colony when it is super cold outside is because you rob them of all their heat and all the, the work and energy that they've been expending to keep it warm and keep that climate controlled. But if there are any brood in there and you pull out a frame and expose it to 60 degree air, you're likely to kill all of that brood and that can be a huge setback. So temperature is very, very important when it comes to that. That is a very astute observation. And thank you for pointing out that we have not ever actually mentioned why. Never have mentioned um, but yes, I say yes, you say nope. No, we always carry ours in a... Uh, one of the plastic five-frame nuke boxes. Well, if we're going to move them very far, which we don't have to move very far anyway, but, you know, we don't move over four or five miles. So, But we'll pull one out, put it in a nuke box, and uh, set it in the back seat and turn the AC off, and here we go. Yep, drive over to the next place. The other thing you can do is cover it with a towel. Um, so it is in its container and you set it in there and then you also cover it with a towel to kind of keep any draft and air off of it because if you had all the windows down and you took off, that air coming through there can act like a convection and it can also dry things out. So keeping it warm, keeping it isolated from drafts and from wind and a little bit moist is better. Um, and then, you know, the quicker you can get it to its destination, the better. But ultimately, it's not usually a huge thing if it's a short distance, 20 minutes or less, usually you're okay unless it's sub cold temperatures out there. That may be a different story. If it's really cold, you know, really should you be doing that at that point in time or not is kind of more of a bigger question. But ultimately, hopefully that goes through and uh, and get you all fixed up there, Rachel. Thank you to everyone who sent in listener questions. Um, I do have, so those were all of the emails. I do think that I have a couple here from online. And uh, one of them we had talked about in, uh, in our bonus episode about the beards from Asha. Uh, this was her actual question, and I did not mention it on the bonus episode. I just talked about her thinking that we all had beards because we were rednecks. Um, oh, that one, yeah. Yeah, that one. So Asha says, I just started and I'm getting ready to build my boxes, which brings me to my first question. You guys have talked a lot about top bars and Langstroths, but I haven't really heard anything on Ware. Have you guys just never heard of it, or have you decided that from the get-go it's simply not worth it? The Ware have... It's not... That's more of a... Just to, they fill it full of their comb, right? It's, it, it doesn't have frames or, or bars, right? Or does it? 
It, I've never had nothing to do with a Warrior have, Knife. Yeah, it's kind of a cross between the top bar and a Langstroth. So the Warrior Hive has narrow bars. It doesn't have bars that completely seal it off like a top bar does. It still has gaps between them like a Langstroth would, but it's not a frame. It's just a bar. Mm-hmm. And they build their comb free hanging off of that bar or that, I don't even remember what they call it, a wedge or something, uh, slat. They build their comb off of that just like the top bar does. Mm-hmm. So it's not supported by anything. They will ultimately probably attach it to the sides of the box, depending on the size of the box. And then it goes down and they'll fuse it to the bar below them in the next box. So when you're doing your management techniques on them, you have to use something like a piano wire or fishing line and put it between the boxes and pull to cut the boxes apart from each other. And then you can take that box off and do your inspections. But the other downside to the Warre, in addition to how you have to separate them and how intrusive an observation or inspection is, is the fact that Warre's are designed to be nadired or under-supered. And that means that the weight of everything above it in the exact order that it is needs to come up off the ground in one piece and your newest box goes on the very bottom. And then when you harvest, you still take it from the very top. But that's kind of the the whole methodology and, and principle behind that. Some of the new modern worry boxes do have windows in them so that you can at least open up the window and look in there and see, oh, this is brood or this is capped honey to kind of know what's going on in different sections of the boxes since how it is such a pain to go through and do. Um, but they are way more heavy lifting than a Langstroth because of the the nature of the box needing to go below and everything above it needing to be picked up. So it's a lot more effort. It's a lot of heavy lifting. It is very intrusive on the bees. Um, Those are kind of the downsides. The upside, though, is that the bees are drawing natural comb like they do in a top bar. So therefore, they're going to have more of that natural stance. They're going to be able to build the cells in whatever size they want, where they need it, when they need it. Um, so there's some positive effects to that as well. But yeah, the Warre is, it is a novelty item that is, it was an older school design that has kind of gone by the wayside and then come back. And it is definitely something that you can use if you want to, but we don't necessarily recommend it, especially for beginner beekeepers. Um, that is a, a more advanced style beekeeping that is going to be way more intensive and really involve much more work than the top bar itself does. So that that's kind of why you don't hear it mentioned as much. For us old bearded rednecks, it's just too damn much work, girl. <laughs> you did sound like you needed a beard there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, our very last question. So the, the first batch was all emails. This one here is our last one on social media. This is from Charlie. I believe it's Charlie. If not, it's Charlie, but I think it's Charlie. Um, Hi, John and Ken. I'm late to the party, but I'm so glad that I made it. Your podcast has been the perfect supplement to the beginning beekeeper course that I took through my local beekeeping association. Like I said, I'm late to the party and I'm only currently on episode 29. Hey, guess what? Surprise! When you get here, we talked about you. You just didn't know it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Episode 29 was about combining and consolidating hives, which is perfect timing because I find myself in need of that very solution. One of my two Langstroth hives, I'm in Greensboro, North Carolina, by the way, became nectar bound, and so their numbers have become dangerously low, and I don't quite think that there's time for them to be able to recuperate and fully be able to survive the winter. I'm going to combine my weak hive with the other hive, which is much stronger, and my question is this. 
My strong hive has a medium full of capped honey so far. After I place the newspaper down and I add the weak brood box on top of the strong brood box, do I need to add the honey super from the strong colony back on top of that as well? Or should I wait and add those resources back after the two colonies have acclimated to one another? Thanks in advance, best Charlie. Okay, what do you think? I want well, they, they're going to what the reason they're going to go through is they want them out so they can go do whatever they could do outside. But uh, should she even take that that medium off and go let them go through the medium, or do you stack the two brood boxes? I don't know. Well, that's also a great scenario too. Um, so you can do it. You can do it one of two ways. Uh, ultimately, when it's all said and done, it has to be touched. They, they have to be all moved around. So the first version would be like you said. You could just go out there, take the top off, put the newspaper on top of the honey super that's existing on the strong colony, put the brood box on top of that, let them chew through it, let them intermingle, and then take that brood box off entirely and get rid of it, depending on what's in it. Like if there's if it's honey bound and there's not a lot of other things going on in there, you could then take that off. And if it wasn't sugar feed, you could extract it or you could freeze it and have it for emergency food stores in the winter. Mm -hmm. The other method is to go through and do like what you were saying, where you actually disseminate the whole thing. You disassemble it. You put the newspaper on top of the original strong colony, put the weak brood box on top of that, and then put the honey super back on top of the weak brood box so you still have brood, brood, and then honey, and then go through and close that up, and you could kind of do the same scenario. If that other brood box that you're combining is, again, mostly already food stores because they got nectar-bound or honey-bound, you could do this. They're still going to chew through the newspaper. They will intermingle, become one colony, and then you could leave them with a double deep so they actually have two deep boxes and then the medium box that's on top that's your honey super, since how it's already capped food stores, again, if it is honey and nectar and not sugar syrup you've been feeding them, you can take that off, extract it for yourself, or you can turn around and freeze it and have it for emergency food stores. So you can kind of do it either way. But ultimately, when winter finally does set in, you want to just have your two boxes there. You don't necessarily want three or four boxes in that stack. So at some point, something will have to kind of step back out of there on that regard. But yes, um, you can you can combine it in that manner. You can do it either way. You don't necessarily need to wait and take it off and then put it back on. There's no reason to, to not have it on there to begin with. The only thing is that you want to make sure that there is no upper entrance when you're doing a newspaper combine. You want the only choice for the bees in the top box to be to go through the newspaper intermingle with the bees slowly down below and then out the original entrance so that they reorient on their new location. So that's the that's the only caveat. But otherwise, you should be good, Charlie. So thank you very much for reaching out to us there. Thank you again to everybody who participated in this round of listener questions. Hopefully, that was plenty of information out there to be disseminated to everybody and they all you know, everybody is able to find little nuggets of truth and little nuggets of things like, oh, I never thought of that, or I should have asked that, or I've had that same question. And that's why a lot of times these listener question episodes are some of our bigger, downloadable, more popular episodes out there. So again, hopefully everybody enjoyed. Um, we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up. We are right about the hour mark for the day. So 
thank you guys for tuning in, and uh, y'all be good out there. Y'all be healthy. Stay, stay, stay well. That's all we want to do. Y'all be well. It's time for our guys to buzz off. But don't fret. The Hive Jive journey continues with new episodes Mondays every month. Until then, you can follow along with the guys on Facebook and Instagram at The Hive Jive. Thanks for listening and be safe out there.